Hello, and welcome to Business Talk, brought to you by Business West and Living Local. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS, and I'd like to introduce our host of Business Talk. He's the editor and associate publisher of Business West. Here's George O'Brien. Okay, welcome everyone, and welcome to another episode of Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. Uh, we have a great show for you today. We have State Senator Eric Lesser. Uh, we've had Eric on the show before. He always has a lot to talk about, and today is absolutely no exception. We have a lot of things to get to, Eric, uh, including the state's economic development bill, high-speed rail, lots of other things. But I would be remiss if I did not uh, talk about the events of this week. This is Inauguration Week. Uh, as most of you know, Eric, you worked in the White House. Uh, during the Obama administration, you were right there in the middle of all this. Tell me what what's going on right about right now with the new administration. What, what's yeah. happening down there? Well, uh, well, first, George, uh, great to be back, and uh, and thanks so much for for having me and for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, what a week that was yesterday. <laughs> um, uh, already, so much has has happened, but uh, yeah, I mean, so the president's team right now is is settling into their new roles, uh, and you know, the first and most immediate things that the new president has already committed to doing is a set of executive orders. Uh, in certain cases, undoing what what I believe are some of the most damaging policies of the last four years. If you saw last night, uh, President Biden signed an executive order rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, signed an executive order rescinding the Muslim ban, if people remember that from the early days of the Trump administration, and also some proactive things, signed a uh, mask mandate for interstate travel, signed a mask mandate for federal property, uh, and already has filed and sent to Congress an immigration reform bill uh, those were some of the first things he did just just yesterday evening after entering the White House. Today, uh, they're going to continue to um, to do that. Another very important thing that he's probably spending a portion of today doing is is doing introductory calls with foreign leaders. Uh, certainly, many of them lined up to be the first to congratulate. Uh, President-elect Biden after his election, but now that he's formally in, uh, his team is probably setting up a set of calls for him with our key allies. Uh, he's going to probably be getting a security briefing uh, and kind of easing into the, or not even easing, but jumping into the pool here uh, and moving forward. I'll tell you, when when I was there in 2009, we thought we had uh, quite a lot on our plate, two wars of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan were happening, and there was a historic global financial crisis going on. Uh, but this takes the cake in terms of challenges <laughs> that uh, that our, our new president is facing. And, you know, I know that one of the top things on his list is, is also going to be the vaccine rollout, which has to go a lot faster than it currently is. So uh, I've been getting some fun text text messages and calls from friends of mine who were who were pretty young uh, staffers back in 2009, 2010, who are now in uh, very senior roles. I was excited to see Jen Psaki give her first White House press briefing yesterday evening. Jen, that someone I worked with. Yeah, I worked with closely. What a change, uh, frankly, from uh, from the press briefings we saw in the previous administration. So I'm feeling very good about uh, about where things are in Washington right now. See, I don't know where it all started with the first hundred days. I don't know which administration. You're as much of a historian as I am. I don't know who started. It was uh, FDR. Yeah, it it's goes FDR. back to the hundred days uh, of the New Deal. Yeah, the implementation of uh, of his first hundred days. Of course, FDR took took office in the midst of 
a great national crisis. And, uh, and um, historians have kind of described that period when he set up the Works Progress Administration, set up the New Deal legislation uh, as the, is, you know, the set of policies that helped begin to pull us out of the Great Depression. So yeah, ever since then, presidents have used this kind of 100-day benchmark uh, as a way to measure their new administrations. Does that ramp up the pressure and the anxiety and the workload on those in the White House, knowing that everybody's gauging those first 100 days and that so much is expected now? I, I, absolutely. I mean, and I think just the combination both of the the sort of historical import of that 100 days, again, going back to FDR and, and the way he really revolutionized the presidency in a lot of respects, but also, you know, just frankly, the way modern politics works the bulk of a president's domestic agenda really tends to get done in the first year uh, because you, you shortly after that, you have the congressional midterms, things become much more polarized. You go kind of, back into campaign season. And then after the midterm elections, of course, the president himself, or hopefully one day herself, is running for re-election. So if you look at the big signature domestic policy achievements of, of presidencies, they tend to be in the first two years of the term, really actually in the first 18 months or even first year. So there's a lot of pressure on a new president to get their agenda moving as fast as possible. We've never, well, we don't want to spend the whole time talking about who's in the White House, but uh, this has been the first time I can ever think of when a president took office with probably minimal expectation that they will be a second term. I don't think that that's ever happened, maybe in the history of this country. Uh, what, what is that? How is that going to change the dynamic here? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, you know, he he himself, of course, is, has not said that, although he's made kind of allusions to it by saying kind of that, you know, during the primaries, he said he wanted to be a transition president. He said his role was to uh, kind of calm the country uh, and restore confidence in government and then hand the baton uh, to, a, to a new generation of leaders. He was pretty explicit about saying that uh, over the course of his campaign. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. We don't, we don't really have a, uh, a historical uh, comparison. Um, but I do think it raises quite a lot of pressure on, puts a lot of pressure on, on Kamala Harris and on the role of the vice president, uh, because of course, you know, she would be uh, one of the, certainly one of the front runners uh, in, 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 uh, in 2024. So, but, you know, stranger things have happened and you could, you could see, you could certainly see President Biden run for re-election. I think, I think, you know, we're one day into the administration, so we'll see what happens. But I think you're going to see a lot of um, trust placed in Vice President Harris. And I think you're going to see a very broad portfolio for her uh, in the administration, which, which, by the way, has not always historically been true for vice presidents. Uh, it was really Jimmy Carter that kind of revolutionized the office of vice president. Walter, he gave Walter Mondale a, a kind of remit of responsibilities that went far beyond the traditional role of a VP. Ever since then, you've really seen the role transform. Dick Cheney was a very influential vice president, certainly Joe Biden for, for, um, uh, for Barack Obama. So I think you're going to see you know, a very substantial and very important uh, role and portfolio for Vice President Harris. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Let's shift back to Massachusetts yeah. for a minute. Just just very slow times, George. Yeah, nothing <laughs> nothing to talk about. Nothing to talk about. <laughs> Senator Lesser, as you probably know, co-chairs the Committee on Economic Development and Emerging Technology. So you had a hand in the $600 million economic development bill. Tell us what's in it. Tell us what's 
very important. Probably every aspect of it is important. Yeah. yeah. What do people in Western Massachusetts need to pay attention to? Yeah, well, I'm very, very proud of this legislation. We spent months and months working on it. I think, yeah, George, you and I talked about it when it was in its earlier phases of, of getting put together. There's, there's a few kind of very important parts that I'll, I'll give everyone kind of an, an overview of, and then we can get into some of the specifics as it applies to Western Mass. So the first piece of the of the legislation, which is now law, the governor signed it uh, about, two week, about two weeks ago. Uh, but the, uh, the uh, first and, and arguably most urgent element is authorizing over $600 million in new uh, aid for, in particular, small businesses, but really it's it's even broader than that. It's small businesses, organizations, nonprofits that have been the most impacted and devastated by COVID-19 and written into the authorizing language. So, you know, quite literally written into the law authorizing the borrowing is priority for uh, both racial and geographic equity, uh, because something we know that's very important is COVID-19, while everyone has certainly been suffering from the impacts, not all of the impacts have been felt uh, equally, and especially in our communities of color, our low-income communities, our immigrant communities, and our gateway cities, we've seen disproportionate impacts both from the virus itself in terms of transmission rates, um, mortality rates, uh, uh, um, case rates, but also the economic impact, uh, the devastation it's caused on the hospitality sector, uh, has disproportionately impacted, of course, lower wage earners, people who uh, work in hotels, work in restaurants, work in um, you know customer-facing industries have been the most impacted. So we really kind of surge the resources towards those sectors. So we create, uh, for example, a new grant program uh, for the smallest kind of micro-businesses to really help them, frankly, keep the lights on until we can get the vaccine out and until we can get to the other side of this. Uh, we also have a, a whole package of items to help our restaurant sector, which is, again, one of the most devastated sectors. Before COVID-19, 300,000 people uh, worked in restaurants in Massachusetts, and uh, we're facing, frankly, an extinction event for thousands of restaurants in our state. So we put in, in place a new delivery fee cap. Um, so, you know, services like Grubhub, Uber Eats, DoorDash, which have been a lifeline for a lot of restaurants, they were in some cases taking advantage of restaurants by charging oh. these excessive fees. So we put a cap on the um, fees at 15%. This was one of the single biggest asks that the restaurant industry had of us as a way to kind of immediately help. And we, we only apply it to community restaurants, so 25 locations or fewer. So McDonald's, Outback Steakhouse is, is not going to be getting this benefit. This is going to be targeted at the local, small, smaller restaurants, locally owned restaurants that are have been the most devastated. Uh, we created a new tourism destination marketing program, which we hope will be able to get up and running, of course, when it's safe to you know really fully market tourism again. But one sector we know is going to need a lot of help in the in the years to come is is our tourism sector, which has been absolutely devastated. It's going to create new resources and new um, supports for um, our regional tourism marketing uh, areas. So, for example, Western Mass would be able to have a sort of dedicated funding stream uh, to promote the Basketball Hall of Fame, to promote Six Flags, to promote MGM, to promote the Springfield Museums. 
Uh, we also um, created uh, a new and signed into law a significant new uh, student loan bill of rights set of consumer protections. We have over a million people in Massachusetts that collectively owe over $40 billion in student loans. Right now, uh, student loan servicers are operating with, frankly, no state oversight. You know, to be uh, a hairdresser, to be a barber, to sell insurance, you need a license, you have a consumer watchdog making sure you're doing things safely. That, frankly, didn't exist for student loan servicing, which is shocking when you think about the financial impact that that has on people. So we created a new student loan Bill of Rights. Um, we also very significantly put in some very, frankly, historic housing reforms uh, to try to spur uh, more housing development in the state, in particular to spur more transit-oriented development, denser multifamily housing closer to transit so that we can um, you know, create more affordable entry points to the housing market for especially younger families and working families. I think we've all seen, you know, the house price, the housing prices in Massachusetts have just gotten completely out of control. Nobody can afford to live here. We've got to produce more housing, and that's also going to put thousands of people to work doing the construction uh, and 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 getting the uh, the housing online. So there's a lot more in the bill. I'm, I'm sure we want to have a, a little bit of a back and forth. But the key thing for people to kind of take away from it is we were doing two things. We were getting immediate aid, authorizing immediate aid to get out to the most impact impacted businesses and sectors, the restaurants, the cultural organizations, the small businesses. Uh, and we are laying down very important policy changes for the medium term and even the long term to make sure that the recovery coming out of COVID-19 is as broad and as inclusive and is as robust as possible. So how do these measures affect Western Massachusetts specifically? How are we going to, yeah. we're not so, a lot about leveling that playing field and, and we're still talking about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of these elements, um, you know, I think are, are really actually pretty specifically tied to Western Mass. I'll give you an example. We have in the, uh, in one of the authorizing sections on the grant program, specifically a grant program for rural infrastructure. Uh, and this is going to be uh, targeted at communities under a certain threshold in terms of population per square mile uh, and specifically focusing on doing infrastructure investments, infrastructure and um, community improvements in rural communities. We also are uh, expanding $5 million additional dollars in borrowing capacity to help continue to invest in rural broadband. Uh, this is, frankly, I think the shame of our state that we still have communities in Western Mass that don't have access mm -hmm. to rural broadband. You think about how doubly insulting it is that that's the case during COVID-19 when people need the uh, broadband access to work and to go to school. So those those items specifically, I think, are going to have a really big impact. Also, you know, tourism is a very important sector of our economy in Western Mass. You think about the Berkshires, you think about the Pioneer Valley, up and down the kind of I-91 corridor, the importance of those cultural institutions where we have specific funding um, in place in those authorizing languages for our cultural assets uh, for our um, for our museums, cultural and performing arts sites that have been impacted. And, 
you know, I would also point out the gateway city measures, uh, the, the measure I point out, you know, we have, um, you know, a large minority population, uh, in particular in Hamden County, uh, that has been, um, you know, really uh, disproportionately impacted, dare I say, devastated by COVID-19 and making sure that the state aid programs are targeted at those businesses in Holyoke, in Springfield, in Chicopee, um, that have really faced disproportionate burdens from these closures uh, is important. I'll give you just an example. Uh, I did, uh, yeah, I did, um, I did a, a, a great talk. Uh, I have my own podcast. I'm going to have to have you on, George, but I had a, um, I had Shagun uh, Idowu, who is the head of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, on last week, and he did a survey. And this is back in March when COVID was first starting. He did a survey of, and his organization did a survey of their member co- um, uh, uh, companies and uh, and um, and uh, business business members of their association that showed that even in early March. I believe it was mid-March, more than 60% of their businesses were facing, uh, you know, severe adverse reactions um, to from, from COVID-19. And that was in March, you know, that was before a lot of the shutdown measures, the social distancing requirements, and before the case counts really exploded to the, to the rate they are now. Uh, a lot of surveys and um, data is showing that as much as 95% of Black-owned businesses uh, did not participate or could not participate in the federal PPP program. Um, you think about that? I mean, not, nearly nearly all. Uh, and so we have, you know, just as an example, we have a, a state-level PPP program that we set up in this bill that would um, specifically target and be specifically available to the businesses that couldn't or didn't participate in the federal uh, PPP program. So We've got to keep that, you know, front in mind in, in our policy response. And, you know, given the makeup of Western Mass and the and the and the communities that we represent, it's going to do a lot to help us here as well. I guess the question in everybody's minds is, is this going to be enough? I mean, the restaurants. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, break, break it down for the restaurants. Yeah. Kind of give me yeah. a specific example. How this would help a small restaurant owner. Yeah. So, so first, uh, no, the, the short answer is no, it's not going to be enough. Uh, nobody, I think, uh, thinks it will be enough. I made clear in my public statements, both on the floor of the Senate and, and in the comments around it, that I really view this as a down payment, frankly, on a, on a set of policies we need to be doing and a, and a set of measures we need to be taking that are need to be, need to ramp up much faster than they currently are, although that's probably a, uh, another topic we can get into. But just to give you an example, like uh, we we talked to a lot of restaurants about the delivery fee issue. So restaurants right now are under public health guidelines that restrict how many people can eat indoors, right? In the in the dental, this, this all obviously makes sense given what's happening with COVID-19, but it's creating a massive restriction on their ability to make a living because if they used to have a dining a dining room of 100 people now at max they can maybe have 20 25 people that's a 75% reduction in the potential revenue they can make unless they are doing takeout there's just no way that they can really make that math work so one of the the tools for the takeout has been these these delivery companies you know like the Uber Eats the Grubhubs the DoorDashes there's a lot of different ones those are the most well known and they were, in some cases, you know, taking advantage of a, of a desperate situation because they were charging fees to these restaurants that were, in many cases, you know, just way beyond what was what was appropriate given the circumstances. So, 
putting that cap in place is going to allow those restaurants to keep, you know, more of their sales uh, to invest in their own business and to pay uh, their, their employees. So that's just one example. Uh, another is the micro grant program, which uh, ranges from about $25,000 to $75,000. These are not loans. These are grants. If a restaurant, if a small retail shop, if a, hospitality or sort of public facing business can demonstrate, you know, that they've lost, you know, significant revenue, you know, that that money is probably not going to make up that loss, but it could help get them their rent check paid, right? It could help them keep a couple people on their payroll so that they're not going over to, to unemployment. It will help them keep the lights on. And that's really at a bare minimum what we need to be doing right now so that they can stay, stay alive until we're on the other side of the virus. I think originally last year, the Keep the Lights On program, we're, we're thinking about, you know, last fall or even last summer. Now, Keep the Lights On means probably all the way to this fall. Right. And, uh, like you mentioned, thousands of restaurants are, are imperiled here. Hopefully, this will be enough to, like we just said, keep the lights on until the lights come on. Right. I mean, just to give you an, another just example, uh, we had the head of the Mass Restaurant Association testified the Economic Development Committee. Now, this was in the summer, uh, actually late spring, early summer that he gave this testimony. And already in the late spring, early summer, they estimated that as many as one in five restaurants in the state had already at that point permanently closed. And, you know, I believe that there are something like 18,000 restaurants in the state. So you're talking about, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 businesses that had already closed uh, across the state. And this was permanent closures. And this was in the early summer. So it's only gotten obviously worse since then. And, you know, the, the, the risk we have with this, George, is um, first off, it's a human tragedy when a business like that closes, a family that, that, that no longer has that support. It's a tragedy for all of the employees who are now unemployed. It also creates significant risk that you have permanent scarring in the economy that metastasizes in a much broader way because now that restaurant is not paying rent. So the landlord ha- runs into trouble. That Lord- landlord might have a mortgage that they might not be able to pay anymore. Now the bank is in trouble. Um, the suppliers of the restaurant no longer have a customer. Now the suppliers have to cut back and you you see a cascading set of consequences that can really quickly get out of control unless we get that emergency aid out the door. The trickle-down effect. Right, or trickle-out. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Eric, we never did get to high-speed rail, but we will, <laughs> we'll have you back soon. We'll yeah. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll talk about high-speed rail. Thank you again for your time. As always, very informative, very insightful. Uh, good luck with everything in Boston. And, uh, Thank we'll you. See you soon. Yeah, I appreciate it, George. And uh, and thanks to everyone. Hope everyone's staying staying safe. And uh, you know, we, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the, the vaccine is is trickling out. We gotta do a lot more to get it out faster. In the meantime, we just need everyone to, you know, stay vigilant. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. As Eric said, stay vigilant. I'm George O'Brien, the editor of Business West Magazine. You've been listening to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. We'll see you next time.